All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We left off on page 67. We're going to be looking at the final question under the subheading Free Will or Human Powers. And then we'll be moving on, God willing, to the Gospel on page 68. And that will probably take us the rest of the time today. After the Gospel comes justification, so obviously those will tie together nicely. Let's begin with an invocation and the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so if we look at page 67, the new question is 132. It might benefit us to just go back to 131 and recall this question. Can man resist this kind of divine operation, hinder it, drive it out, and counter with contrary action? Indeed, he can, and alas, too often and too much, does so. This was contrary to, if you remember, Tulip of the Reformed Confession, total depravity, unconditional election, and um, as you go down the line, ultimately you get to the I, an irresistible grace. And we find in the scriptures that grace is, alas, too often and too much (laughs) resisted. So we are against that confession of irresistible grace. We find grace readily resistible. And then question 132 is somewhat connected with this. Should one then neither hear nor meditate on the exhortation of the law, but wait idle and secure till he is drawn and converted by God with violent force? (laughs) No, of course not. And the thing to zoom in, you know, and I, I kind of mock this view because it's, it's actually become popular. The antithesis of Chemnitz's view has become popular in modern Lutheranism. But I always mock it with this idea of, I'm a, you, know, you know, if my son or is sitting on the couch and I say, take out the trash. And he says, I'm going to wait for the Holy Spirit to move me. <laughs> Sanctification is not... Passive in that sense. We cooperate with the Word of God and recognizing that He's the one that sets our wills and liberty to cooperate with Him. And so, again, all glory goes to Him, but we don't just sit around and wait until God moves us with violent force. That's true for conversion <laughs> before we even become Christians, and that's true. Um, also in terms of sanctification and that aspect of our Christian lives. Okay, so Chemnitz is going to answer this in the negative, just as I have. So top of 68, no, he who hopes to convert himself in this way is all wrong. For God indeed wants to convert man, but not without means. For that reason he instituted for repentance or contrition, of which we now speak, 
a certain means or instrument through which he wants to work it in man, namely the preaching of the law. So again, we're looking at the law in its proper work is affecting repentance in the narrow sense or contrition, which is sorrow over our sins. Repentance in the narrow sense, a recognition that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Those are the things in view here. So he wants to work repentance and contrition in man, namely through the preaching of the law, which Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 and 9, therefore calls a ministry of death and condemnation, namely because it is a ministry means an instrument by which God leads us to the acknowledgement of our sins of divine wrath and fully deserved damnation, so that thence the fear of God and repentance might be aroused in us by the working of the Holy Spirit. Men are therefore to be led to a diligent hearing and meditation of the law by frequent exhortations. And they are to be reminded very often that those exhortations of the law by which sins are rebuked are to be loved and exalted because God wants to work, preserve, and increase repentance in us through that means. Moreover, that the exhortation of the law is effective in hearts, this does not depend on powers of our free will, but on the operation of God himself, who alone can change the heart of man and put one of flesh in place of one of stone. So again, meditating then in finality here on the fact that God affects conversion through means, And conversion is not something we can work with in ourselves. That's chiefly what's in view here. Okay, that gives us opportunity to pause and give you a second to gather any thoughts or questions you have on free will or human powers. Again, whenever we're talking about free will or human powers, you really want to, before you even begin, define what state of man you're talking about. Remember, there's those four states. Adam and Eve before the fall, because free will can be discussed on different terms then. Fallen human beings before regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's the natural man. That's largely what we've been talking about. And then the third, a Christian. Someone after regeneration, who has within them the remnants of the old man, but also a new creature within, a new man within, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's the third category. And then the fourth category are the saints in heaven and or how we will be in the new heavens and the new earth. But those are effectively the four. So all of the Christian controversies by and large are centered on numbers two and three. Natural man before conversion and then the Christian after conversion. Shall we move on to the gospel? Let's do that. Page 68, question 133. Are then hearts frightened in repentance by the exhortation of the law and contrite to be left without comfort? By no means. For the Lord kills and makes alive, brings down to the grave, and brings back again. So in the former case, that's the work of the law, to kill and bring down to the Grave In the latter case, making alive and bringing back again is the work of the gospel. Chemnitz continues, And it is a mark of the New Testament 
to heal the contrite heart and comfort those that mourn, and to forgive and comfort, lest those that are contrite be swallowed up with boundless sorrow. Reference to 2 Corinthians 2.7. So in this sense then, as we've said before, the law ultimately, the preaching of the law ultimately serves the gospel because it prepares hearts to hear the gospel. That's God's means by which he causes hardened hearts to become contrite. But God doesn't leave us there in sorrow and recognition that we're under the condemnation of God. But next comes the gospel that Christ has borne that, con- that condemnation in our place. And now, therefore, in Christ, there is no condemnation. Yes, sir. Oh, one second. I'm sorry. We're running a mic today. So I'm just thinking uh, evangelism. Should we be flexible, you know, when we're trying to reach out to people, you know, family members, friends, whatever, mm-hmm. that when we see somebody, already sort of broken to be give them the gospel right I mean, yeah generally speaking if you find somebody now so the language of broken does have to be a little articulated what that means but if you find someone who recognizes that they are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God then that's most certainly and obviously an opportunity to comfort with the gospel mm-hmm. now there's art there it's not a science there's art and the same is true with you know, finding someone who's heart of heart. It doesn't always work to just hammer them with the law, and if they don't feel contrite, to say it again louder. <laughs> so there's art in terms of the application of law and gospel. And that somewhat further complicated by your vocation, by your relationship to them. So... I mean, as a son, if my father were impenitent in some way, and then, by contrast, my son were impenitent in some way, I'm going to handle those two different things very differently <laughs> because of the vocational nature. And there's instructions. I mean, there are proof texts for this in the scriptures, if you want. Paul instructs, I think it's Titus, it may well be Timothy, but I think it's Titus in this case to be cognizant of the people he's speaking to and the way in which he addresses them. So there's art, not science. And, it, and so on one hand, it is a, a sort of complicated issue and an issue of art. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean don't do it. That doesn't mean don't get paralysis by analysis and don't fear doing it wrong. Just address your neighbor, think theologically and address your neighbor as you yourself would be addressed. Keep in mind that you want them to go to eternal life, and that kind of helps when you just see that, hey, here's the goal. And you realize, too, that... I mean, I heard heard a pastor recently on a podcast reflect on this, and and I, I resonated with it. He said, in all my years of talking with people, it's like never happened to him where there's just suddenly the light bulb goes on and someone's like, that's it, I'm converted. <laughs> can, I, can I get baptized right now? So his experience in, who knows, a couple decades of ministry, and it's kind of similar to mine, 
the reality of the situation is that the Holy Spirit works when and where he wills. And, you know, we often, it, it can be cliche, but we, it's true nonetheless. We are very often planting seeds. We are very often saying words that if they're going to have an effect, may have an effect later on or way down the line. Yeah, that word broken, I try not to use it too much in my preaching because it can be laden with misunderstandings, you know. So to clarify what we mean by broken is really important. Your analysis that way, too, is often what we do in mental health field. We're planting seeds, and the biggest victory a, a, a mental health therapist would would step back and smile quietly inside their heart mm-hmm. is when they begin to hear some of their words parroted back to them and the person doesn't know how they got there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's the cool part. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. You know, that's, that's something we, in a diff- slightly different vein, we've had opportunity to consider in our men's study on Monday night. And that's, you've got these deep theological realities that strike at the soul but they have their echoes and patterns in the mind and psychology and also just in the body and physicality. So there's no, why would we be surprised at that? God who makes our souls and gives us these core dynamics of law and gospel, of contrition and faith, um, they have their echoes in psychology and they have their echoes in physicality. Yeah, right. That's the goal. When mental health is done right. Yeah, of course. I, uh, I think we'd all acknowledge that. Absolutely. Okay, so far so good. So then, that takes us to question 134. What doctrine then is to be set before those that are contrite, whence they might seek comfort? Answer, they are not to be sent away to the doctrine of the law to seek comfort from its works. And references here to Romans 3.20 and 4.15. But the doctrine of the gospel is to be set before them. For from it, they will be able to draw true comfort. And then references given to Isaiah and Luke. Okay, so the way of the world is quite contrary to this, even though they might not recognize the terms. When someone in the world is feeling contrite or down or sorrowful because they've done something wrong... The impulse is to immediately do something, whether it's connected or not, that makes them feel better about themselves. So that usually and often is uh, a, an appeal to the law. So if I've done this or that wrong, I'm going to go do that, this or that right, sometimes very often not connected, the idea being that I'm just going to feel better about myself because even though I did a wrong here, I did a right here. And this kind of idea of the conscience balancing itself or karma or uh, this sort of thing, it's, this is what the Lutherans would call the opinio legis, which is written into the old Adam. It's this idea that by my works I can justify myself. Now you'll recall from earlier meditations on this text that the feeling of, oh, I feel better about myself. You know, I drank too much and did a bunch of stupid things last night, but this morning I got up and went to the soup kitchen, and so now I feel better about myself. That what that produces is either self-righteousness or despair. So it's a kind of false and temporary comfort. It's kind of a Band-Aid 
bullet hole or it's medicine that ultimately makes one worse. So rather than directing someone or ourselves back to the law, back to works, to this idea of karma or trying to balance out our good with our bad, we want to direct others and ourselves to the gospel because that sets the conscience free, that gives health, that precludes despair on the one hand or self-righteousness on the other. So just, again, very basic categories in terms of law and gospel and soul care and even our own spiritual battles. But worth pointing out, because Chemnitz here um, mentions this explicitly, that those who are contrite should not be directed to the law, but to the gospel. All right, question 135, what is the gospel? Good question. The prophets designated the preaching of the New Testament with the special Hebrew word, uh, Bashar, Basar, tell good tidings. Isaiah 40 and 52 and 61 all cited here. The term evangelize has been taken from the Greek translation into the common use also of other tongues so that it is commonly called evangelium, gospel. That is a doctrine that announces good and joyful things. All right, so most broadly, Old and New Testament. Here we're talking about the periods of time reflected in the books of the Old and New Testament. It simply means good news. And you know there's good news in the Old Testament. There's good news in the New Testament. Okay. So let's go on to the next paragraph and get some further clarification. Now, the name gospel is sometimes used in general for the whole doctrine that is to be set before people of the New Testament. So we've talked about this before, that the gospel has a wide sense. Sometimes the gospel contains within it both the, the preaching of repentance or the preaching of the law and the preaching of the good news, salvation in Christ Jesus, full and free. So gospel can sometimes, we find it in the scriptures, be used for law and gospel. That's gospel in the wide sense. And a whole slew of references are given where Chemnitz finds those, uh, that usage in the scriptures. He continues on the top of page 69. So also by the name law is often understood the whole doctrine of the divine word. So sometimes when you see law, it's actually law and gospel. That's law in the wide sense. So you run into this. I mean, I think it's referenced here. It is. Isaiah 2, Psalm 19. Oh, no, it isn't. Um, one, Psalm 119 is frequently like this where the law of God is mentioned, it doesn't mean narrowly just the Ten Commandments. It means the whole word and counsel of God, the Ten Commandments included. So the law, the Torah, broadly, is just the word of God, law and gospel. Likewise, the gospel, broadly, is just the word of God, law and gospel. I know that's kind of confusing, but you find it in the scriptures. You find the different usages in the scriptures. So understanding those two categories are really helpful because otherwise you can get yourself wrapped around the axle just when you're reading the Bible. Haven't you said in the past that if you go through the sermons of Jesus, it's mostly law? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I'm that's misremembering something. something. Um, that is, that is a kind of caricature of Jesus preaching that's very popular today. So it's sort of this unspoken thing, and I, I mean, I think it's shameful, but sort of this unspoken thing that, like, Jesus gives us the law and St. Paul gives us the gospel. 
<laughs> Which is why people like and know St. Paul better than they do Jesus. But I, I, while I may present that as kind of a caricature or error, um, I'm convinced that Jesus is the absolute best preacher of law and gospel, that his sermons are punctuated with law and gospel, that he so masterfully does it, sometimes with a single word, single sentence, single theme. He's doing both law and gospel, depending upon you as the hearer. I mean, this is masterful stuff, the stuff that just a regular old Joe like me could not do. And you recognize that. And then I do think, though, that what Jesus does, that we all, and by here I really am pointing at the clergy, and myself included, what Jesus does is preaches in a way that's not cliche, and that's not obvious. So that's where sometimes people can hear Jesus say, well, he ended with the law. How dare he? That breaks our Lutheran rules that you always have to end up with the gospel. Well, where did that Lutheran rule come from? Did it come from the scriptures? If Jesus, who's the greatest preacher who's ever preached, can end his sermons on the law, can we not also, should we not also humble ourselves and be as he is? So there may be some of my comments that, yeah. Yeah, I've I've noticed that when I read something more than once, I'll sometimes see it from totally different angles. There was Mm -hmm. uh, two weeks ago the gospel reading in church, there was a line in there that like I hadn't really noticed before. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and Jesus with the gospel is so wonderful about it because I think one of the marks of late Lutheranism, I mean, I'm being a little critical here and unfairly critical maybe because if we look at broader Christendom, the gospel is just not even there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we should be thankful for what we have. But sometimes the gospel is made so simple as to be pedantic. Now I'm giving you the gospel, which is, you know, and so on and so forth. Don't you feel better? Then it gets psychologized into, you know, the law is feel bad because you're a sinner and the gospel is feel good because you're Jesus and don't you feel good. And it just gets pedantic and weird. That's what's so refreshing about Jesus is the understated nature of the gospel. How many times does Jesus say, and lo and behold, I am doing the gospel unto you? Another thing to pay attention to is how often does Jesus talk about the forgiveness of sins? A lot less than we do. It's there. It's central. Don't get me wrong. But the idea that since the gospel is the forgiveness of sins, we have to literally use those vocables every single time is a mistake. It makes cliche and it makes pedantic. What you find in Jesus is the gospel spoken and done much more subtly than that. So Jesus will say something like, your faith has made you well. That's the whole gospel. He's just excluded good works. He's just taught what St. Paul takes two chapters to teach. Jesus has done in one beautiful sentence. Or when you know Jesus interacts with the adulterous woman, and just does so so masterfully. On the one hand, they're exalting themselves over against her, and so he says, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And then he says to her, um, neither do I condemn you. So notice there's not like any, I forgive you your sins, but just neither do I condemn you. That's his gospel there. Go and sin no more, which is beautiful, wonderful soul care. And you go, oh, 
He just, why did he ruin the gospel by ending with the law? Because that whole idea we've come up with isn't biblical, and it isn't what Christ himself does. So we should, if we want to truly be sola scriptura Lutherans, which we do, we should cling to the words of Jesus and humble ourselves and do theology the way he does theology. But it's a master class of soul care, and it's a master class of preaching the gospel in ways that aren't cliche or pedantic. So that's part of you know the thing that I've one of the things that I've grown into as a pastor is looking at how wonderful of a preacher Jesus is and how he quote unquote does the gospel in ways that aren't immediately recognizable simply because they're not cliche. Um, you helped me refine my thought there too because my first idea was which is part of it and um, oftentimes the seekers only find what they're looking for. Mm. And now you're telling me, too, that, and I agree with you 100%, Jesus is the most masterful at delivering sermon and both law and gospel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in his subtleness, perhaps then, too, because these are unconscious things. That's why I always question Mm -hmm. if I, I, you know, when I'm looking for some information, well, am I just looking for what I want it to say, Mm -hmm. which is a human frailty, he sees past all that, and in his subtleness, gives you what you actually need, which, mm-hmm. as you mature, you recognize that more and more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he bypasses our desire to, to find what we're looking for. Yeah, yeah, well said. Possibly, I don't know. Well said. No, I think that's exactly right. It's kind of a fun idea. You don't read the scriptures as much as the scriptures read you, mm-hmm. and that is especially poignant when you come to the teachings of Jesus, because... The things that strike you as uncomfortable or odd or strange or not right or I wouldn't have done it that way is precisely the point. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. The Gospels invite you into that, in fact. Um, very often you see your own thinking in either the disciples or the crowds in their reaction to Jesus. That's done by intent of the Holy Spirit that we would see then what the Lord says how we naturally are inclined to think of that and how we might overcome that lest we fall into the unbelief and blindness of the disciples and the crowds before the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And if you're too in somebody's face, yep. immediately the brain goes preserve, preserve, preserve yeah. so you're not receptive. Yeah. yeah, well, that's exactly right. And, you know, that's one of the, to me, this is one of the mysteries and, of our Lord Jesus you know, no one talks in the Bible about hell more than Jesus. And yet, he is known to eat and drink with sinners. And to be the friend of sinners. So somehow, in this one man, in this one theologian, is the ability to be absolutely white and black, absolutely stern and strict, maybe even what we would call fire and brimstone relative to the others. And yet, he is so in such a way that sinners aren't appalled or turned off or feel as though he's being pedantic or demeaning or so somehow even though he's able to be so straightforward and so blunt he's able to do it in such a way that people know it's for their good or sinners rather know it's for their good that's an amazing thing that to me that's that's a mystery worth all of us studying and contemplating because if we knew how to do that 
we'd all be far more effective Christians. And more than that, we'd reflect the heart of I think Christ. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's very much a gift. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree with all of that. It's a gift and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, of course, not precluding the idea that we would study and seek to emulate Jesus and seek to think of how it is that he is able to do that. Yeah. Okay, I think, yeah, please. Well, I was, I wanted to say that, that you know, the work of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together. And with our evaluation or analysis and everything, mm-hmm. is actually the love of God that he works in us through the Holy Spirit with such a love and patience that each one of us, you know, we have a specific treatment from God to lead mm-hmm. us to to the last day. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, and I'm the I'm one of them that really resists the gospel, and I'm still working on it. Mm-hmm. That I pray to God to give me a complete understanding of the gospel, mm-hmm. because this is so true that we we learn you know few paragraph before that mm-hmm. we you know I just identified myself with this, that we resist the gospel constantly. Yes, it's true. It's true. That's a a baked-in part of our sinful nature, so we all experience that to one degree or another. I would set forward the opinion that some of us, by virtue of our constitution or by virtue of our experiences, are more prone toward legalism or self-righteousness, are more prone toward despair on the other hand, or um, maybe even more prone toward a kind of antinomianism, an embrace of the gospel to the exclusion of any deeper reflection, a kind of cheap grace sort of way. So, yeah, these, in one sense, this is all true of all of us. But in another sense, you will find, based on your personality and makeup and experiences, a propensity toward one of those things or the other. Yeah. Yes? I just wanted to say that thinking about the way Jesus interacts with people, he listens to what they say. I mean, a lot of it is supernatural that he already knows what they're thinking. But an analogy would be you go into a doctor, and the doctor walks in and just starts talking Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and hasn't asked you any questions and hasn't looked at your chart and doesn't even know who you are. This is what it is, and this is how to be healthy, and this is, you know, it's it's ridiculous. You have to listen you have to interact with people and truly ask them, you know, where did they get their information? How did they come to this belief? And really just kind of stand down mm-hmm. like Jesus does. He waits until they show their cards before he lets them have it with the truth, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I would agree. I, I mean, I think Jesus is uh, certainly one to make assertions of the truth and to just state things as truth. In when uh, he asks questions, they're obviously very intentional questions to fetch out where the person is at and how best he can answer them. 
And when he answers questions, he frequently understands the presupposition of the question. He frequently looks at the, why is the person asking this, as much as what are they asking. Those are some of the ways in which, if nothing else, we can admire. <laughs> we can admire our Savior and his, uh, in one sense it's pastoral ability, but in another sense it's deeper than that. It's just his human, his human ability. You know, There's a sense that he's true man, or perfect man, like fully human. There's another sense in which he's true man or perfect man in the sense of the fullness of what it means to be human. And I think that's kind of what we're marveling at and worshiping together here as we contemplate. So, thus far with Chemnitz, we were at a really simple point. The gospel in the first place, in terms of what you find in the Old Testament books and the New Testament books, is good news. Okay, If we're going to put a little bit of a finer point on it, we're going to say that the gospel can contain both the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, or the preaching of the law and the preaching of the gospel in the narrow sense. That's really where we left off at the top of 69. So I'll just reread that sentence and we'll be off to the new material. So also by the name law is often understood the whole doctrine of the divine word. Likewise, gospel can mean the whole doctrine of the divine word. And in this sense, the general definition is true that the gospel is the preaching of repentance and remission of sins. For Christ and Paul include the whole doctrine of the entire ministry in those as the chief members or chief parts. So Luke 24, 46 through 47 is, and Acts 20, these are both cited, but this is the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations in my name. It's Jesus' literal command. And it really is why the heart of the pastoral ministry needs to be one of law and gospel, needs to be one of repentance and the remission of sins. That's always at the core. Even though we're going to definitely say, like, the forgiveness of sins is like the foundation upon which just a whole three-dimensional and exceedingly fruitful gospel gift is given— It may be more than the forgiveness of sins, but it's never less than the forgiveness of sins. That's always the core, the heart, the foundation, however you want to think about it. Okay, so that now in terms of good news, broadly speaking, or the gospel in the wide sense, it's the preaching that we are under the condemnation of God, but God has had mercy upon us, though we were his enemies, in giving his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice of atonement. Chemnitz continues, For Christ and Paul include the whole doctrine of the entire ministry and those chief members or parts. Moreover, since the preaching of grace and of remission of sins is not to be set forth before either the proud Pharisees or the secure Epicureans. Now this harkens back to categories we've seen earlier in Chemnitz's text. And we'll spend a minute here after the sentence just to continue. But the contrite or penitent, since also in the preaching of repentance, lest consciences be brought to despair, but that the sorrow of contrition might bring forth repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of. The preaching of the law is not enough, but the preaching of the gospel must be added as the apology. That's the defense of the Augsburg Confession, as the apology says. All right, so let's go back and just review real quick so we understand what's being stated. Moreover, since the preaching of grace and the remission of sins is not to be set forth before either the proud Pharisees or the secure Epicureans. So, 
here's this is uh, you know somewhat to your point that you made earlier. I won't say your name and dox you, but it's somewhat to your point <laughs> that um, the gospel isn't for everyone always. And that's kind of, uh, for whatever reason, in the late 20th century, early 21st century, that became a scandalous thing to say. But it's not. If you look at Lutheran and Western theology, if you look at scriptural theology all the way back, this is just obvious. There are those who it would be wrong to give them the gospel. So think of someone who like outrightly rejects Jesus, and you just say, well, even that sin is forgiven. <sighs> All that does is gives a false impression of, okay, great, well, he's a safety net there. I don't even believe him in the least, but whatever. That if, this guy, if what this guy is telling me is right, then in the end, I'll see Jesus and all my sins will be forgiven. So I'm going to go on and just live however I want to do as an atheist, as a fornicator, as a sodomite, whatever my you know, predilection might be. And I, that I'm just going to live in sin. And so that's a misapplication of the gospel, isn't it? So the gospel doesn't go to two types of people, the Pharisees who are self-righteous. That's Jesus saying, I didn't come for the well. People who think themselves well. This is casting pearls before swine. If someone thinks that they're righteous and you say, well, Jesus has more righteousness for you, or no, you still need Jesus, it just falls on deaf ears. What you have to do first is attack that. Oh, really? You think you're righteous? None is righteous but God. And Jesus, you hear him do this all the time. So, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus says, good. Why do you call me good? There's none who's good but God. So, kind of a way that he picks up on a single word and uses it as a preaching opportunity. But that idea that um, the Pharisees, the self-righteous of heart, uh, don't get the gospel. They get the law. The law has to do its work first. Now, there's another category of people, and that's the Epicureans. And the Epicureans, you can think of, if the Pharisees are legalists, the Epicureans are lawless. And they're antinomian. And they're, um, hey, I can live however I want to live and do whatever I want to do. And um, I'm not as bad as Hitler, so I'm going to heaven. So you can see the Epicurean is, I mean, it's a, in a sense, the Epicurean is much more prominent in American culture than is the Pharisee. The Pharisee may be more prominent in the church as a, as a whole in the, the U.S. I don't know. I'm open to that idea, whatever. Um, but in terms of American culture, it's much more Epicurean. I'll live however I want to live, and everybody ends up in heaven except for really bad people like Hitler and the five people I don't like. Those are, it's kind of the American view, isn't it? So you even find this, too. I mean, I don't mean to mock people in their, in their pain or in their misery, but it's just so frequent. I don't know, is the news still on TV? Do they still do that? No. <laughs> just teasing. On the, on the news, on TV, you'll see some tragic accident and some mother weeping. He was such a good boy. He never hurt anyone. He did blah, blah, blah. blah. And then you find out like he was run over by a train while raping, murdering, and pillaging as part of a gang. Okay, so this... To study that, even though, it, you know, again, I'm not trying to minimize the pain, it's a, it, it, what a bizarre phenomenon. What a bizarre phenomenon that you would look at this person who's quite obviously wicked and dying doing something wicked, and then you would say, oh, he's innocent, he's good, he never did anybody any harm. And that's, the, that's kind of an indication of, of course my son's in heaven. 
It's a kind of an indication of the lawlessness in which we live. And of course, you can see a sense of self-righteousness. Wow, that his goods outweighed his bads. Sure, that's part of it. But generally speaking, it's a kind of Epicureanism. Live however you want to live, and in the end you go to heaven. In the end you'll get your wings. God's a good guy. He winks at sin. He's got bigger fish than you to fry. That's kind of the Epicureanism I think we see in American culture all around. If your analysis is different, so be it. It doesn't change the fact that there are two groups of people, two conditions in which we find souls where it is not right to give them the gospel because you simply confirm them in their error. You simply say, um, when you preach the gospel, it's either going to fall on deaf ears or it's going to confirm them in their error in such a way that they go, okay, well, whether or not that's true doesn't matter in the least. If it, if it isn't true, I'm right. Then I just get into heaven. If it is true and you've just said, well, my sins are forgiven no matter what, then I'm not going to believe and I'm going to go on living the way I live and even my unbelief then, as you just said, will be forgiven. So it's a complete failure to preach the gospel. It's a complete failure to convert that person to God. So it's important for us to realize then that the law must precede the gospel in these cases. Please. Yeah, with that said, about maybe certain people shouldn't receive the gospel, many times when you're in conversation with a neighbor or with a coworker, that's when it comes up. You, you, we have no way of knowing if that gospel is not for that person. So my thing is that to always present the gospel and make a discussion, and then if they appear to be that way, you say, okay, I can back off. But again, I feel that that gospel needs to be presented to all because who am I to say that, hey, the gospel is not for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think we can take that as a friendly amendment that, um, maybe, maybe frequently in terms of conversation, you present somebody with the gospel only to have them reject it. And then you, through asking questions, you come to find out that the reason why they reject it is a Phariseeism, a self-righteousness, or an Epicureanism, a lawlessness. So fair enough that as you're talking to people, you may not be able to make your diagnosis that this is a Pharisee or an Epicurean, until after they've rejected the gospel and the reasons why they've given. So I think we can take that as a friendly amendment. This isn't so much like an instruction manual on the order in which you must address various people, but rather, once you recognize that someone is an Epicurean or a Pharisee, you have to recognize that the gospel is not what you want to preach to them. You want to preach the law to them, speak the law to them, explore the law with them. And I think that's a better way. I I don't know. There's two ways to do it, in my opinion, that are most effective Take it for what it's worth. I think one of the things that we need to recover, and I need to recover this myself, is to just, like, don't make it as complicated as, like, just start saying that that's evil. Such and such a thing is evil. Let people gasp and clutch their pearls, and who are you to say such a thing? And know that, I mean, this is kind of that idea that I've mentioned before of regaining the high ground. If God says it's evil, and you say it's evil, that resonates deeply within the core of that person, whether they're willing to acknowledge it or not. They may have every intellectual roundabout and defense up. It doesn't matter. The fact that you just say it's evil bluntly and plainly is indicting to the soul. They're not going to be happy with you. Who cares? 
So we, in one sense, we can make this profoundly simple. Just start calling evil, evil, and good, good, and watch what happens. That in, that in effect is the preaching of the law. So that can be very helpful. I think the other more complicated way is the way of questioning and the way of finding out what their system is, how it is that they think they're righteous, or how it is they think they're good, and then start poking holes in that. It's really easy, because what you're going to find out is, even though it may sort of like appear superficially to be sophisticated and nuanced, and, oh, have you read this philosopher and that moral teacher, and, oh, what about Plato, and it really comes down to something that's very, uh, just a very simple self-deception at its core. That you've lowered the standards in such a way that you fit them. But your standards are not the standards by which you'll be judged. Right? So that, too, then, is ultimately a very simple preaching of the law that your standard is not the standard God's standard is. And by changing the standard, you sit in judgment over God himself. So just start to become simple and blunt with the preaching of the law and the confrontation of Pharisees and Epicureans. You don't have to overthink it. Just let it resonate. Let it sit. Please. Um, for example, the Pharisees, they are very legalistic, but it seems like they give themselves all gospel. They are just legalistic with others, but they are, they are the ones that have all the gospel on them, but not lawful to, to themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's one extreme. And on the other side is Judah, that seems like he's condemning himself just by rejecting the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's why he... Mm-hmm. So standing both sides... We will lose our salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and this is our sinful nature that put us into that situation. Mm-hmm. Either or. So, it's just uh, I lost my question. <laughs> well, well, maybe I can help, and if you think of it more clearly, just feel free to interrupt me. So the Pharisees and Judas both suffer from pride, ultimately. But it's pride that manifests itself in two very different ways. So with the Pharisees, it's pride that... And the the Pharisees' sense of self-righteousness is that they're better than others. Not that they've fulfilled the law perfectly, but that they're better than others. And so that's their whole sense of self-worth. Remember the Pharisee in Jesus... Uh, parable who walks into the temple and says, not, I thank you, God, that I've kept the law perfectly. That's not the Pharisee's religion. That's a caricature. But I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unrighteous, lawless, even this tax collector. So it's a pride based on comparison. Okay. Now, Judas suffers from a pride, and that's a pride where he recognizes unlike the Pharisee, that he's a sinner and he's condemned and he's not justifying himself because he thinks he's better than other people. But his pride is such that he won't receive God's forgiveness. So that would sound to us something like, uh, if I darken the door of a church, the whole church would collapse on me. That's, the, that's, the, that's a form of the sin of Judas. It's a prideful despair that says, 
I'm outside of the grace of God. God could never forgive someone such as me. But what are you doing with that? You're ultimately calling God a liar. And probably interwoven there is really some flesh just pretending to play theologian because you don't want to go to church and don't want to clean up your life and don't want to come to terms and truly repent of what you've done and be forgiven and move on. So anyway, while there might be a nexus, there's that root of pride. So in self-righteousness and in despair is always the root of pride. Okay, please. I often find myself stuck between being aggressive and passive because I think of the Bible verse that says, always be ready to give an answer for the faith that you have. Always be ready to answer rather than being aggressive. Please comment on that. (laughs) Yeah, with all patience and long-suffering. So um, I think that that's generally true, though not true in all cases. And I don't think that's doing any violence to the scriptures. The general attitude we want to have as Christians is to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Now, even, even the setup of that language, though, why is it that you're giving a defense for the hope that is within you? Well, because you've already expressed the hope that is within you, and someone's called you to defend that, or they've called you to like explain that. So in other words, we're living as Christians in a hopeless world as those who have hope, as light and darkness, as salt amongst dirt. And when that distinction is known, someone's going to ask you about that, maybe positive, neutral, negative, whatever the case may be. That's when you have opportunity to give a defense of that hope that is within you, uh, or an explanation might be better, of that hope that is within you. And you want to do so with long-suffering because, hey, they're already curious. They're already, right? So if you've got a curious inquirer who's operating in good faith, then with all patience and long-suffering and everything else, explain and you know, defend and be kind. And that's the general sense of that scripture. Now, if you're dealing with people who are not operating in good faith, I think all bets are off. And I don't think that that scripture precludes that. If it did, it would, it would contradict Jesus or it would contradict Paul himself at certain places. I mean, is it, all suffer- is it all long-suffering and patience when Paul gets so fed up with the false teachers in Galatia, he says, I wish you would just castrate yourselves? So I don't, again, I don't think we should take that as like some sort of universal law that there aren't exceptions to. Our general demeanor as Christians, patient, explanatory, not offended, giving a defense for the hope that is within us. But if you find somebody who's attacking you, who's operating not in good faith, who's, you know, there, be blunt. There's even opportunity sometimes to be rude. Have in mind not winning the argument or besting this person, but have in mind what does this person need and what they, the best you might be able to give to them is a kind of insult to their ego. That might be the best you can do, is trying to show them that they're not as well as they think they are. Right? Okay, so does that hopefully give a little commentary on that, our, our sort of general posture as Christians toward those uh, who are, might be outside, and then um, the exceptions to that when we find people who are not operating in good faith. So just to uh, force us forward... Let me see. All right, if, we can, if you can find the Pharisees or the secure Epicureans, the proud Pharisees or the secure Epicureans, something like eight lines down, we'll just pick up their mid-sentence. 
but the contrite or the penitent. So the gospel doesn't go to the proud Pharisees or the secure Epicureans, but rather it goes to the contrite or the penitent. So those who are sorrowful over their sins, those who repent of their sins. Remember the, the people on Pentecost to whom Peter is preaching and they're cut to the heart and they say, what shall we do? There's a key, like concrete biblical example of what it looks like for people to be contrite or penitent. And does Peter say, like, shape up and start obeying the law and maybe God will forgive you? No. Repent and be baptized. Repent, metanoia, change one's heart and one's mind. Repent there, you can tell, means be converted. Be converted and be baptized. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's for the contrite and the penitent. And then after the semicolon... Since also in the preaching of repentance, lest consciences be brought to despair, but that the sorrow of contrition might bring forth repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, the preaching of the law is not enough, but the preaching of the gospel must be added, as the Apology says. Okay, so if you're talking in broad categories of preaching the gospel, that's law and gospel. Or even if you said preaching repentance, that's law and gospel. The, the central point here is that while the gospel doesn't always lead and the gospel isn't always for everyone, the point is that the law goes out, the gospel always needs to find its place. Once the law has done its work, the gospel needs to be there. Otherwise, it's not good, good news. Otherwise, it's not the gospel, right? That's, that's to oversimplify, I think, maybe a little bit, effectively, what Chemnitz is saying. So again, just for the sake of moving on, Let's carry on with the next lines. And finally, those who neither believe nor obey the gospel are and remain under the wrath of God and eternal damnation unless they are converted. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, I'm sorry, my friend, but you remain under the wrath of God. What you're doing is evil in his sight, and you'll find out soon enough. I mean, are those, are those kind words? Yeah, actually, they are. <laughs> Superficially, they may not be received as such, but you're doing the best you can to break down that person's self-righteousness or secure Epicureanism and trying to penetrate a heart of stone and cause contrition. So there may be a time and a place for that. Okay, next paragraph. In this sense, then, it has often been said and is repeated several times in the Apology itself. Again, this is the defense of the Augsburg Confession in the Book of Concord. That the gospel is the preaching of repentance and remission of sins. So still in the wide sense. For in the doctrine of repentance, which is taught on the basis of the law, the gospel profitably declares many things. But when we speak especially and properly of the gospel observing the distinction between law and gospel. So you can tell what he's doing. We're moving to gospel in the narrow sense. He continues, so that the proper ministry and work of each is attributed to it, so that namely the law is the ministry of sin, of divine wrath, wrath of death and, cond- or, and damnation. Excuse me. But the gospel is the ministry of righteousness, life, and salvation. Then the gospel, as the apology says, is properly the promise of remission of sins and justification for the sake of Christ, preaching the righteousness of faith in Christ. So that's righteousness of faith apart from all works. 
And that free gift of salvation, free gift of the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, that's the essence and core of the gospel in the narrow sense. So we've moved from gospel is good news to, well, gospel, broadly speaking, is law and gospel, to gospel in the proper sense, where we distinguish it from the law, is the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Yes, please. Um, one second. We'll get you the mic. What does obey the gospel mean? You have faith. So, yeah, so scripture, and scripture speaks this way. This is where we get this. So, um, Faith, sometimes in Scripture, is synonymous with love and is sometimes synonymous with obedience, which we think of as law terms. And in some ways, it's not a bad way to think, but just recognizing that in terms of the usage of the Scriptures and good exegesis, law, uh, excuse me, love, which is normally kind of a law word, um, is sometimes used synonymously with faith. And obedience, which is almost always a law word in, the way, in our way of thinking, is very frequently used as synonymous with faith. So obey Christ or obey the gospel is to believe. Yeah, yeah, great question. Okay, so again, the gospel is the remission of sins and justification for the sake of Christ. And I mean, we're here at just foundational conceptual stuff, so no problem there. But of course, on the basis of the remission of sins, you immediately go, well, why do my sins need to be, are my sins being forgiven and then I just go to death and die? No, your sins are forgiven that you may rise and live forever. So you can see how the forgiveness of sins is the foundation upon which all the other blessings are built, and all the other blessings are as great as the heavens and the earth and greater still. Uh, It's reconciliation with God for all eternity and all the gifts and benefits that flow therein. So all of that constitutes the gospel as well. It's just the heart and core of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Okay, so again, the gospel is properly the promise of the remission of sins and justification for the sake of Christ, preaching the righteousness of faith in Christ. That God, that's God's crediting or God's reasoning or God's um, counting us as righteous. Not on account of any works we've done, but on account of faith. He simply credits us with full righteousness. That's the gift and beauty of faith, exclusive of works. As Jesus everywhere teaches, but as Paul does in long form and explanatory form in Romans. Okay, well, I'm seeing we have a minute left, so let's pause here, uh, and next, next week is Vacation Bible School, so everything's canceled next week. We won't have the service, we won't have um, anything like that. Uh, We'll do Vacation Bible School. So two weeks from now, we'll pick up at question 136 and continue our meditation on the gospel. The Lord be with you.